It's Tuesday, December the 14th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. That means I have a ringside seat to a scintillating conversation featuring three of my colleagues. That would be the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, and the geostrategist slash Goodfellow, most likely to show up on your doorstep wearing an ugly sweater and singing Christmas carols, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. Gentlemen, good to see you on this, our last broadcast of 2021. Oh, ho, ho, Bill. Good to see you. <laughs> so I was going to call you guys the three wise men from the West, and that sounded a little sacrilegious. And I was going to go with three kings, and that sounded out of place in the Republic of ours. And so can I go with three magi, or is that a little too spiritual for this broadcast? Three madmen. Three madmen. <laughs> okay, Neil. So here's a question, Neil. If the Magi show up in 2021 in California bringing gifts, uh, the book of Matthew tells us what? It's frankincense, gold, and myrrh. What are they showing up with in 2021? This is California. Are they bringing crypto and cannabis, or what do you think they have in tow? How about a vaccine that works against the Omicron variant? That would be good. I speak with uh, a certain bitterness on this subject as I tested positive this morning. Ooh. As a consequence, I'm going to sound rather guttural and indeed may lose my voice altogether. So that would be uh, one uh, gift uh, if, if we could have the wise men hurry up with that, because uh, if they can't, if they don't, an enormous number of people are clearly going to uh, catch this variant and start sounding like me. Or maybe okay. the FDA that would let us have said vaccine and treatments and all the rest of it. There you go. So I'd like each of you to reflect on 2021 in your particular policy avenues. And Neil, why don't you go first and why don't we talk about COVID uh, since you've already brought it up. And uh, today is December the 14th, Neil, and this is an anniversary here in the U.S. It was one year ago today, December the 14th, 2020, that the first corona, uh, coronavirus jab was given in America. And the answers to who got it was a ICU nurse in New York City. Her name was Sandra Lindsay. Uh, footage of her getting that jab was shown live on the Twitter feed of then New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. So at least one thing has changed in the past year. But here's what Nurse Lindsay said, Neil, when she got the shot. Quote, I hope this marks the beginning of the end of a very painful time in our history. I want to instill public confidence that the vaccine is safe. We're in a pandemic, and so we all need to do our part. So, Neil, let's parse that. Uh, are we still in the end of a very painful, have we reached the end of a very painful time in our history, or are we still in the middle midst of pain? Second, um, have we reached public confidence in the vaccine? And then thirdly, are we all doing our part? A few weeks ago, I began an article for Bloomberg Opinion, the pandemic is over, the pandemic is not over uh, because I think at that juncture, prior to Omicron, many people uh, were talking as if it was over and that clearly was premature. I'm also reminded of something my friend uh, Nicholas Christakis said earlier this year when I was asking him if it was the uh, beginning of the end. He replied, well, it may just be the end of the beginning. We had high hopes uh, of, of vaccines and with good reason because the efficacy of the first vaccines that uh, that were available, Pfizer and then Moderna, in their phase three trials was very high indeed, much higher than I'd expected when I was finishing my book Doom just over a year ago. And so there were grounds for celebration. I think we mostly underestimated the extent to which the virus could mutate in ways that were vaccine evading. I certainly did. I, I've had been collecting vaccines. I've been jabbed three times. Uh, I had a booster shot uh, several weeks ago. And yet I still seem to have picked up uh, the Omicron variant. Uh, Pfizer says 70% uh, 
is is the number, but but I must be in the thirty percent, and that that's going to be a lot of people, because it's extraordinarily contagious this new variant. So I look back at, at the beginning of uh, of twenty twenty one, and I think uh, there was a good deal of of optimism that that we had. Uh, solved this and that the end was in sight. And indeed, I kept getting invited to post-pandemic conferences. And I would tell people, can't talk about that yet. We're not there. The transition from a pandemic to the endemic phase of a disease like this, the phase in which we all kind of get accustomed to it as we've got accustomed to influenza, uh, or for that matter, the common cold, it's a very slow and often imperceptible thing. And it can take a lot longer than you want. And we all want this to be over. We wanted it to be over a year ago. Uh, and unfortunately, although we are very, very done with the virus, it is clearly not done with us, including including me. So looking back, I, th I think the right state of mind uh, at the end of 2020 was to recognize that we'd achieved something remarkable, or the scientists had achieved something remarkable with the vaccines, but that didn't mean that it was necessarily over or even the beginning of the end. Mm -hmm. Can I uh, jump, jump in on this one? Uh, <clears throat> I am disappointed biologically, as, as Neil is, but I'm also tremendously disappointed at our public policies relative to my hopes at the beginning of the year when we had a vaccine. Uh, the, the vaccine the vaccine should have uh, stopped it in its tracks. And, and as you know, the vaccine rollout has, has been a little bit chaotic. Um, the, the status of public policy is worse than it was last year, at least uh, you know, where are the rapid tests? Well, the FDA is still sitting on them. <laughs> uh, where is the where is the population sampling? So you know how many people in your area actually have it. Still not happening. You watch the uh, the booster debates over the summer, which were which were just like a clown show going on in, in Washington. Uh, and we're down to pu public policy. Public health policy consists of changing mask mandates. Well, today, put it up over your nose, tomorrow down there. Now you have to wear it in bars, but not in restaurants when you're eating, all of which makes uh, nearly no difference. So I think my, my disappointment in, in our public policy uh, response to this is, is profound and, and things could be uh, a lot better. Uh, and, and it's kind of sad that they got enshrined into a into a fairly uh, into into a state where things just aren't, aren't working very well, and and it doesn't look like we're we're learning lessons at all. I mean, the, the one thing to add to that, John, is that quite apart from policy, the extraordinary resistance of a really quite big proportion of the adult population to getting vaccinated has meant that the United States has probably had two hundred thousand more deaths from COVID than it needs have and that that i don't think can be blamed on on the public health bureaucracy if anybody can be blamed for it it has to be the big tech companies that have allowed the anti-vax mania uh to proliferate and be Perhaps. amplified on but, social but media if, if that's we had very... not been lied to so many times about so many other things perhaps people would believe a little more when the boy comes down from the mountain and says there really is a wolf this time yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's, there's some truth in that. But I think if, if one asks the question, which René de Resta asked pre-pandemic, why is anti-vax such a powerful movement? Interestingly, a movement that used to be associated with the left. Why is it so powerful? And one of the answers she came up with was that it really has known how to exploit the possibilities of the internet and of, of social media so that uh, Facebook groups, for example, have played a huge part in promoting very uh, uh, crazy ideas because clearly the virus is much, much more dangerous than the vaccine, probably two orders of magnitude more dangerous. And yet people have 
held that. And I think some significant number of people, certainly more than 100,000 people have died uh, because they refused to get vaccinated, even when vaccines were widely available. And we'll look back and say, was that the biggest harm that arose from giving so much power uh, to the company that used to be called Facebook? Because Facebook certainly played a key role in this. I would just point out too that it's just it's not a partisan issue, right? I mean, what what I've kind of lamented from the very beginning in 2020 was, you know, really a a you know a challenge and and uh, you know a trauma that should have brought us together. Actually, was even more divisive, right? And as we all know, that the anti-vax movement is a nonpartisan movement and and has got has traction, you know, on on both ends of the political spectrum. And I so I, I just wish that our leaders would. Stop pointing fingers across the aisle at those who are to blame, and recognize that this is this calls for the politics of addition and and leaders who can bring people together, you know, across partisan divides and focus on the common good, right? And it's in the common good to get vaccinated and to help us get this to the endemic phase, and so we can get over this trauma and 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 recover from multiple traumas in the last couple of years. Except that everything became partisan. Masks became partisan. Uh, even the, the death rate of the disease, our, our, our colleague Jay Bhattacharya was censored at Stanford for coming up with the wrong answers to the death rate of the disease. That became partisan. Um, lockdowns, of course, became partisan. The whole thing immediately became a partisan food fight. So no wonder. I, I wouldn't call it nonpartisan. It's bipartisan. The crazies on both sides don't want to take vaccines, but they're highly partisan about it. I think last year, I mean, if, if I look back on what I was uh, writing and saying a year ago, I think I expected us to move more rapidly forward than we have uh, on both on politics and on, on public health. And this sense that we have yet another wave, the full uh, damage of which we can't really quite know yet. I mean, it's hard not to be a bit dispirited by that, even if you haven't got uh, Omicron, as I clearly have. Uh, I, I guess a year ago, I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been so gloomy, and I'm the gloomy good fellow, as to expect yet another wave to be coinciding with the, the holidays as clearly is going to happen. One other thing about the pandemic, gentlemen, it got caught up in the whole issue of virtue. I walk around the Tony neighborhoods near here of Stanford, and over the course of last year, BLM lawn signs have come and gone, and they've been replaced by a sign saying, I've been vaccinated, or I wear a mask. In other words, this is a new sign that you are woke. I wear a mask. I care, and so should you. Well, it's not a totally unreasonable thing to say in the sense right. that clearly uh, right now I'm having to wear a, a mask around the place to make sure that I don't infect my son who's staying with me here and other people I come into contact with. So let's let's not uh, give the idea that there's something wrongheaded about this. It's clearly a part of how we limit uh, or at least try to slow the spread of a very contagious virus. But the, the appetite to... to signal in this way has apparently grown. And I, I agree with John that we haven't helped ourselves by politicizing a whole range of, of public health issues that back in the 1950s weren't seen as, as political issues. I think it's one of the reasons the United States has done poorly this year. Remember, a year ago, we were told that by getting rid of Donald Trump and getting a new president, a great many things would be solved. Well, it's very obvious that that problem, the problem of the pandemic, has not been solved and the virtue signaling has actually not worked because more people have died of COVID in the US this year than last year. Uh, so I, you know, my sense is that the public and, and the, our political leaders and the health bureaucracy 
together have done a very poor job of this. How lasting the damage is going to be, I don't know. But those people who thought they were going to get normalcy in 2021, and a lot of people thought they were, must be feeling pretty disappointed. I never thought we we would get normalcy because it was clear that there were going to be all kinds of almost cascade-like consequences from the the pandemic. But but a lot of people thought they were going to suddenly get back to normal, and that has not happened. Mm-hmm. Neil, one thing I've noticed is when Omicron first made its uh, presence, there was a narrative in the media, and they quickly wanted to compare Omicron to the Spanish flu in this regard, and that the pandemic ended, but H1N1 stayed with us. And is this, you look at this, and you've written about this in Doom, obviously, is there a historical parallel here between what we're going through right now with COVID and what we went through a century ago? Yes, although it's clear that analogies with influenza can only get us so far because a coronavirus is, is different. Some people think that we should actually look at 1890, uh, a pandemic that was really quite large in terms of its impact. And that was called either the Russian or Asiatic flu. Mm-hmm. Uh, but modern researchers think it may well have been a, a coronavirus because one strange feature which made it very different from influenza pandemics was that it didn't affect young people, didn't affect kids very much. And up until now, and I'm touching wood because there is some evidence that Omicron af- affects children more, evidence from South Africa. But up until now, that's been the thing that's distinguished COVID-19 from the big influenza pandemics of the past. Our kids have not been that vulnerable. And I do believe that one of the reasons people were able to downplay COVID and, and be in many ways frivolous about the need for vaccination was because kids weren't getting sick. Kids were not dying. I believe that when children are getting sick and dying, as is normally the case with respiratory disease uh, uh, pandemics, then, then people are a great deal readier to take action. Uh, COVID has, in in a way, been downplayed, even through waves of really quite major excess mortality, because the excess mortality was heavily concentrated in the elderly and in the sick at first, and then in the unvaccinated more recently. Uh, and, And I think that explains part of the resistance. I'm not sure the resistance to vaccination would have been so strong if there had been more children getting sick. John? Um, I, I still, there's a, a vision. So it's going to be endemic, <clears throat> and, but you can control endemic uh, diseases a lot better. And I'm still, let, let's take a vision of where we should be right now. It took them one weekend to make a uh, vaccine for the alpha variant. They could have made a vaccine for this one over a weekend too. I'm not quite sure what's going on. We don't have it. The FDA is still sitting on on treatments that we could have right now. There's a mindset that happens uh, HR will understand this. There's a mindset when you're sitting around in the Pentagon and nothing's going on. And then there's a mindset when the enemy is, is breaching your front lines. And, and you don't have time for regular protocol and filing the forms in triplicate when the en- enemy's breached your front lines. We, we still don't have that mindset. We, we could right now have an effective Omicron vaccine. We could have uh, rapid tests everywhere through the country. Uh, we, we could have uh, monitoring effective scientifically based public health. We could be getting ready where we have to be where this thing is is constantly mutating, something breaks up, and then you bring it back down again. Uh, Because every single variant doesn't spread throughout the population. The way endemic disease works is you get little breakouts and and then you contain them, especially with the science we have, if only you have some vaguely competent policy. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I mentioned this like a couple of shows ago, you know, that, that this is what we were concerned about at the beginning. When my friend Gus Perna, who ran the whole logistics effort to get the vaccine out, which, of course, was much pilloried when it didn't have instant effect. But then, but then of course, has received, I think, uh, rightly, you know, praise for for uh, for really uh, how the whole the whole operation was conducted. Um, you know, he he said, "What do you, when he's asked, what are, what are you worried about? He said, I'm just worried about people aren't going to take it. Right. So I I do think that you know, that what's missing is leadership, right? Le- leadership who can really reach the American people, not with, with mandates, right? But with a, with a, with a, an explanation and, and coming from someone who the American people across the political spectrum think is credible, right? And so I think we're just overdue, right? For, for leadership, man. I mean, I, I just think that what we have seen so often in, in recent years is kind of anti-leadership, the opposite of leadership. You know, when, when then, you know, candidate, for Vice President Kamala Harris said, yeah, I, I wouldn't take a vaccine, you know, produced under the Trump administration. I mean, come on. I mean, you're going to you're going to try to score partisan political points at the expense of the, the health of Americans. So I just I just think that we have to demand better from political leadership. And and, and in the meantime, you know, we're going to have to we're not wait for them, I guess, and try to convince our fellow Americans to do what's necessary to overcome this trauma and get back, you know, get get back to to. Um, you know, growing the economy and and regaining the strength uh, after we've we've had all these body blows, you know, of 2020 and 2021. So that's your uh, campaign commercial for 2024 HR. Not me, man. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. Hey, I'm you know I'm in the literal ivory t- ivory tower right now. So I so you know I I, I, uh, I, I, I but I I do think that that this could provide impetus, maybe right. I mean to. You know, for for more Americans to demand better, right, from potential candidates, and and hopefully, you know, for more candidates to survive the primary process, who appeal to the vast majority of independents. I think exactly that's right. what we can hope for in twenty twenty two and and maybe in twenty twenty four. That's what that's what Biden ran on. People wanted normal, competent. Turn down the volume. Okay, so since HR said the magic word economy, John, let's talk a little bit about the economy. Uh, and going through my sleuthing for this show, I stumbled across a piece on Bloomberg Business Week. Don't take this personally, Neil. Uh, it was a glowing article about one Mr. Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, including this quote, John, from one Warren Buffett, who said, quote, I've always had Paul Volcker up on a special place, a special pedestal in terms of Federal Reserve chairman. Jay Powell, in my view, and the federal board belong up there on that pedestal with him. Now, John, Mr. Powell had a pretty decent 2021. Christmas came early. He got reappointed out of the federal chairmanship. But what happened to the economy under which he uh, which he supervises? Well, he's not yet reappointed. He's right. been nominated. Uh, been nominated, right? Uh, by the president. And uh, we'll but, he did, but he did not lose his job right? at the hearing. Well, not yet. Okay. <laughs> we'll see what happens. The Senate still has to confirm him. Which okay. But let's talk about the economy compared to a year ago. Please. What what happened? I don't like to make this personal. Uh, being head of the Fed is a, is a big job. The Fed was was blindsided uh, with the Fed completely missed inflation. I mean, inflation. There is the biggest news is inflation. Um, now I wish I could say I forecasted it. I did, but I've been forecasting inflation since forever, so <laughs> it doesn't really count. Uh, I think but, it still counts. I mean, I remember the. I mean, you guys were you guys were saying, "Hey, this is not this is not transitory. This is going to be a problem." Both of you. Well, this is, uh, in my view, this is really simple. They printed up about $6 trillion and handed it out. What do you expect? Uh, this is the most classic helicopter drop ever. Uh, now we'll get into it. This isn't a deep economic show. Whether this continues or not, once that works its way out, uh, depends on, on, on uh, future policy, not on what happens. But so a lot of plans hit the wall with inflation. Now, you know, what's also going on is the, the massive spending bills 
which are not just a lot of money, but when you read the details, they're uh, really throw sand in the gears of the economy like like crazy bills. Uh, I'm not learning really any of the lessons on how you structure social programs to not have them uh, fall. And, and the, the, the regulatory onslaught is, these are things that are kind of under the radar screen, kind of, ex- I mean, do they expect that? Honestly? Yeah, kind of what I expected them to do, but it's interesting them to see them hit the brick wall of inflation uh, quite so fast. So that that may uh, that may send a, a little reality. I think I think Washington is facing that reality, and and it's uh, not good news for them. Mm-hmm. Neil, how best to uh, slay the inflation dragon? Well, I uh, claim a little bit of of credit because back in the early part of the year, when Larry Summers published a. Uh, a bombshell of a piece in the Washington Post forecasting that the economy would overheat and inflation would become a serious problem, I at least had the good sense to agree with him. And uh, one of the conversations he and I had around that time was about the analogy with the late 1960s, famously a time when the Federal Reserve slipped up and let inflation expectations jump uh, as they did in the late 60s. People often forget that the the inflation problem that we associate with the 70s uh, predated the oil shock uh, by five years. It really kicked off in, in, uh, in 1968. And I think that was a reasonable analogy because what we were seeing in both cases was pretty huge fiscal splurge in the time of Lyndon Johnson. It was Vietnam plus Great Society. And then the Fed letting inflation expectations out uh, and, and letting them slip. And I think that's kind of what's happened. I think we're all still kind of amazed by an inflation rate of 6.8%, but we shouldn't be. Uh, in, in a way, Jay Powell has done us all a service by proving that Milton Friedman was right, uh, that if you have this kind of a monetary policy, there will be inflation. Now, remember, a lot of people uh, really hated on Larry Summers for that piece, including uh, economists working for the administration. They implied that it was just sour grapes because he didn't have a fancy job in the administration. And uh, and they insisted that, no, no, this was actually still a very deflationary environment. Uh, secular stagnation would prevail. Uh, and, and they were completely, really horribly wrong. And now, if one looks ahead to next year, Jay Powell has an enormous challenge on his hands. Real rates are strongly negative, as negative as they have been in decades. Uh, In order to get back to positive rates, you have to imagine an enormous tightening of monetary policy. Uh, Rate hikes are far greater than the market uh, currently envisions. I mean, the market's thinking of three, maybe four hikes, uh, but all of 25 basis points. That isn't going to get you to positive real rates at the moment anyway. Uh, And I think the challenge for Powell, having got his contract renewed, assuming that that is confirmed, which I think it will be, is how does he cool things down without actually crashing the economy all the way into recession? And and if he doesn't cool it down, is he going to have on his historical legacy, the man who did the opposite of Paul Volcker, you mentioned Volcker, who brought inflation under control uh, beginning in the late 70s into the early 80s, a very painful process, but he succeeded. Are people going to say the exact opposite of Jay Powell, that he is the, the Fed chair who let inflation uh, out and, and, and essentially was responsible for an opposite regime change, uh, one that, one that uh, could get worse? I mean, there is a scenario in which inflation expectations just feed off one another. And if the Fed doesn't tighten aggressively and credibly enough, it only needs another shock on top of that, of the sort that we saw in 1973, 
for inflation to get even higher. And here I want to kind of pivot to geopolitics to give HR a crack of the whip. One of the things I'm very struck by as we as we look ahead to, to 2022 is just how much geopolitical risk there is in the world. It's not just that we can envision confrontation over Taiwan. We've talked about that very many times on this show. But there's also uh, increasing evidence that there is not going to be a diplomatic breakthrough with Iran, uh, that Iran is, in fact, extremely close to having nuclear weapons. Uh, and at the same time, uh, President Putin uh, has been apparently on the brink of invading Ukraine, sending an into or continuing his invasion of Ukraine, to be precise. These right. three things, if you take them in combination, uh, imply a potentially very, very scary uh, 2022. If they all happen at once, I don't know how HR's former colleagues in the Pentagon are going to cope. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a really important point, Neil. I think we do tend to look at each of these challenges discreetly and to not acknowledge that at the very least, right, these these adversaries, competitors, rivals, however you want to label them, will act you know, opportunistically and take advantage of crises in one area that diverts our attention so that, so that they can advance their interests in, in, in another area of, of, of conflict. And, and I do really think it's the confluence of these challenges, the ones you mentioned, uh, which, is, which is really the, you know, the, the timeline that Xi Jinping is operating under, especially, I think, after the Winter Olympics and maybe even in the lead up to the Communist Party plenum around this time uh, next year, and to make good on his promise to make China whole again by, you know, by, by um, subsuming uh, Taiwan. And, and of course, what you see Russia doing is, is quite aggressive with, with the coercion of, of Ukraine, but also the weaponization of refugees on the Polish border within Belarus. I think the likelihood the Russian forces could move into Belarus at, at any moment. The continuing enabling of, uh, of the serial episodes of mass homicide in the Syrian civil war and the coercion of the, of the Kurds there under the, the, the Syrian Defense Force to try to make an accommodation with Assad and keep Assad in power, which will perpetuate that conflict. And then, of course, you know, uh, I mean, Iran giving doing the equivalent of kind of flipping us off, you know, on on this uh, in the in these nuclear negotiations because they feel pretty good. They feel pretty good about being able to evade the the the, the, administ the administration's sanctions because they're not enforcing them very well. China's buying a lot of oil, you know, from Iran. Iran is really not under pressure to re-enter into some kind of a nuclear agreement. They're actually accelerating their program. Um, and they're also accelerating their proxy war in the region, you know, threatening our forces, attacking our forces with drones, which didn't get very much, much coverage. Um, I think Israel's going to lose patience here and may act against Iran. So I, I really think these are just a few. And, and we haven't even mentioned North Korea for a long time. Right. But but uh, but North Korea, you know, is is really in an uncertain situation these days because of the effect of covid. And, and, the, and the lockdown that Kim Jong-un has put on the economy, which was the best sanctions enforcement ever. Uh, and, and, and I think that North Korea might be entering into another famine period, right? And who knows what's going to happen, what's going to happen there. So I, I really think, you know, we are entering a period of increasing geostrategic risk. And what's exacerbating all of these risks, I think, is a perception of American weakness and lack of resolve, uh, mainly de derived, deriving from the, the, the calamitous uh, withdrawal, really surrender to a terrorist organization in, in Afghanistan. So I, I am concerned about this this next year. I think what we need more than ever is strong leadership in the United States and across the free world. We had Secretary Blinken just in the in the past couple of days give a very strong speech uh, in in Asia uh, on China. 
But of course, what, what's really necessary is to back up words with actions in a way that will actually deter the People's Liberation Army and the Chinese Communist Party. And, and I think what all the signs are uh, of increasing uh, increasing aggression, not only you know militarily, uh, but also you know, economically and financially as well, as they race to complete digital currency and try to do their best to at least reduce their vulnerability to to the to the dollar as a reserve currency and and um, and so we're we're it, you know, the competitions that we've been talking about for the last like, a couple of years now, guys. I mean, they're, they're actually intensifying and they're catalyzed, I think, uh, by the, this this perception of American weakness and 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 the traumas that continue here in the U.S. associated with COVID, but also especially the you know the vitriolic partisan political environment. And Jeff, if I were these guys, I, I would get on the phone and all move at the same time, which is kind of my my nightmare scenario. That, hey, John, that, I think they're doing it. I mean, I really do. I mean, I think there's so many indicators, right? And uh, of 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 coordination, obviously. And and um, you know, I, I think you can see evidence, and a lot of this has been in the in the public domain now of of sharing techniques, for example, in offensive cyber capabilities, right? These are these are transferable, disruptive capabilities that you see being more widely adopted among hostile states, right? Between China and North Korea and and Iran and and Russia, for example. And I think what we have to worry about, obviously, is brazen military aggression, right. but also I think the range of actions these hostile actors are now taking to try to achieve their objectives below the threshold of what might elicit a concerted military response. And they're getting better at it, right? And 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 uh, it also involves efforts to weaken our, our resolve to, to wear down further the, the fabric of our society, reduce the confidence in our in our democratic principles, institutions, and processes. So there, there's a lot of work we have to do to defend, but a lot of that is to just regain our confidence, you know, so we can convince our adversaries that we have the will to compete effectively. H.R., I'm glad you mentioned Afghanistan. I don't know if the three of you gentlemen saw this uh, on Sunday night. 60 Minutes ran a segment on what's going on in Afghanistan right now. And I think we learned something. The Taliban have hired a communications team because this was a very sympathetic uh, production and it showed very heart-tugging images of children starving to death in hospitals and the Taliban leadership saying repeatedly, we need humanitarian aid. And I think, H.R., there's something like $10 billion of humanitarian aid sitting out there if we so chose to release it. But gentlemen, here's the question. What do we do in 2022 vis-a-vis Afghanistan? Do we give them the money they want? Do we try to put strings on it? What's what's the right approach? Okay, I'll just say that there are some mechanisms that can reduce the the, the chances of aid strengthening mm-hmm. uh, the, the 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 Taliban regime, and those those are the, those are the mechanisms we need to use. Now, the, the World Food Program is is, is one of those, mm-hmm. but giving any aid at all. Relieving any any sanctions on the Taliban is it, it will only perpetuate the humanitarian crisis and catastrophe in the long term. You know, in in the sixty minute supplemental piece that you sent around, Bill, and thanks for that. You know, at the at the end of it, one of the reporters says, "Well, we have to kind of just separate this from politics, regardless of the politics." Hey, it's the politics that's caused the humanitarian right. crisis. It's the fact that a terrorist organization is in charge now in 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 Afghanistan. So this idea that you can be a humanitarian. Uh, by by sort of uh, adopting the false nobility of neutrality when you're dealing with the with a terrorist organization is ludicrous, and all that will do, you know, is 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 give them more resources that they can use for coercive measures. One of those clips in the supplement also was was the, the these Taliban terrorists, right, with creating the veneer of civility mm-hmm. by hosting them to a huge meal, 
right? While their people are starving. That's right. the image that, that I think viewers ought to take away from and, and put and make sure that our government doesn't capitulate further to the Taliban by, by relieving these sanctions and, and doing anything to strengthen the Taliban regime. So, so there's a difference between um, humanitarian aid and directly giving money to the Taliban. Now, this is a difficult one, but but mm-hmm. simply writing a check to the Taliban and saying, here, why don't you give it out to your people for food? You know that's not going to work. Right. And now it's very, they make it difficult. This is true around the world. Now the Taliban are in charge and it's like one of many basket case countries all over the world where you have a kleptocracy in charge and people who are starving and you want to help the people who are starving without letting too much of it go to the people in charge. Uh, but at least let, let's state it that way, as opposed to, are we going to give money to the Taliban, which is a terrible idea. Neil, what should be done? Well, it's uh, already too late to avert an economic disaster in Afghanistan. It's happening now. I mean, there are starving children in Afghanistan now. Mm-hmm. And as HR says, that is a consequence of, of politics. And I'd like to point out that while we are a very polarized uh, country these days, on this issue, there was, in fact, a bipartisan consensus that uh, it was Donald Trump who, after all, uh, arrived at what amounted to a, a surrender agreement with the Taliban, and it was Joe Biden who implemented it. Look at the polls. Republicans and Democrats agreed that the United States should not be the global policeman. They've agreed about that for over a decade. And I've been trying to argue uh, throughout that time that imperial retreat is a very messy business. And it produces uh, not peace and harmony, but catastrophes of the sort that uh, we see unfolding in Afghanistan now. Now, it's uh, obviously the the natural response of New York Times readers uh, to a disaster which they've willed to then apply the band-aid of aid uh, and to expect some uh, success to arise from that. But in truth, The scale of the economic catastrophe in Afghanistan is so huge that it's hard to see how any aid program can do much more than be be a Band-Aid. And this is one of the things that are really shaming about the country today, that we had a bipartisan consensus to bail on Afghanistan and hand its people back uh, to the Taliban as if 9-11 had never happened because we just somehow got bored of what we'd embarked on 20 years ago. Well, let's emphasize who is at fault here, which is the Taliban. <laughs> uh, Afghanistan is, is a tiny economy. We, we could easily run the place if they would only leave. The constraint here is and let the Taliban remain in power. They are essentially holding their people hostage in order to stay in power. Okay. HR? No, I was, I was just going to say, where were the humanitarians, right? When there were people making the argument that we needed to end the endless war, who had said nothing good had happened in Afghanistan, you know, who who were talking about, you know, the, the corruption within Ashraf Ghani's government. I mean, do you prefer Hypatullah Akhundzada now? Do you, do you now recognize the gains that were made as we see them reversed, you know, by, by the Taliban? Uh, and, and so what we were doing in Afghanistan between 2001 and 2021 was a humanitarian endeavor. What our warriors were doing made them both warriors who are operating to help Afghans fight on a modern day frontier between barbarism and civilization. But American warriors were also humanitarians because of what they were preventing in Afghanistan. So this is an argument I don't think you hear being made, but it's it's quite obvious, right? That that those who were advocating and 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 uh, perpetuating this narrative, Neil, that you alluded to with the New York Times and others, you know that this was a 
you know, that this was a, a, you know, a fool's errand in Afghanistan. It was, a, you know, the problems there were intractable. We had failed because, you know, Afghanistan wasn't yet Denmark, right? But of course, it didn't need to be Denmark, right? It just needed to be Afghanistan that was on a slow path to reducing dependence on the international community, which John, John pointed out. I mean, it's Afghanistan was going to be a ward of the international community for the foreseeable future, regardless of who was in charge. But who would you prefer to be in charge at this moment, right? So I, I really think that it's an extraordinary example of self-defeat. And now, of course, even those who are doing the 60 Minutes report don't seem to recognize the hypocrisy, right, of, of advocating for our withdrawal, essentially, uh, under these false narratives about the nature of the war and what was achievable and what had been achieved there. Uh, and now advocating for support, essentially, that would have to be in large measure you know, funneled through the, a terrorist organization. Let's uh, shift our focus to 2022 now, gentlemen. And HR, let's stick with you. Uh, if we agree at the landmark event in America in terms of foreign policy in 2021 was the withdrawal from Afghanistan, HR, what's your candidate for 2022? Is it something as obvious as to America reacting to Ukraine or reacting to a crisis in the Taiwan Strait, or do you have a sleeper choice? Yeah. Well, I, I think the I think the sleeper choice is what we already alluded to, which is a a really uh, a dangerous combination of a number of of disruptive events, and and that would be you know continued aggression you know toward Taiwan and across the Indo Pacific by China, combined with what we already see starting, you know, which is which is the you know the continued coercion of, of Ukraine, but also threatening to the the, the Baltic uh, continued threats against the Baltic states the. The threat, as I mentioned, on the border with Poland, but also support for the Serbian separatist movement in, in, in Bosnia. I mean, there are, there are a number of flashpoints that I think could come to a head concurrently. We're seeing also more destabilization in North Africa, right? The, the Libya uh, effort, I think, is, bound, is probably going to fail to, to come up with a political settlement there. And you have Tunisia, which was like the one successful story, right, of the Arab Spring, uh, is, is about to, to potentially slip into civil war itself. So I, I really think that what what we're 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 seeing are kind of the consequences of 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 disengagement from complex competitions abroad, kind of under the theory bill that like it just can't get any worse, right? It's bad over there, but actually, you know, it can get a heck of a lot worse. Uh, we haven't even talked about Turkey, whose economy is in complete freefall now with the collapse of, of, of its currency, and, and Erdogan doubling down on the bad policies that created the crisis to begin with. So I'll tell you, I hate to be a pessimist, man, because you know that's not the role I play on Goodfellas. But I really do think that we are in for a number of escalating crises and maybe a, a degree of simultaneity of crises that we haven't seen in recent years and decades. Okay. John, do you go along with that? It sounds like HR is kind of uh, playing uh, foreign policy roulette and is uh, putting his money on the corner. <laughs> well, so as long as we're talking foreign policy, I, yeah. I, I mean, my worry is that the, these things snowball. Um, you know, riots come when somebody understands the cops are busy tonight. And, and when, when uh, find a moment of, you know, some sort of crisis going on domestically in the U.S., one of them goes off, then even if they're not calling each other and saying, hey, guys, let's all move on Monday morning. Uh, now is a moment when you can grab some stuff under the radar screen. So uh, the chances of a large, um, sort of a global international crisis seem to me, um, seem to me larger as well. And what do you think, Neil? And then we you just talk about econ economics. Neil, hardly bet on foreign policy, or do you want to bet on a, on a specific horse? Well, I want to, to return to that idea of a cascade or avalanche of events. It's a really important concept uh, from complexity theory that an initial crisis, a pandemic, 
uh, is in fact historically significant because of its consequences, not just because of its death toll. And I think this will be true uh, in the case of COVID-19 because I think its economic consequences, for example, have been much bigger than its public health consequences. In terms of mortality, it's not one of history's really big pandemics, but in terms of its economic impact, it's almost up there with the world war. So I'm going to make five predictions which have a kind of cascade-like quality to them. There will be a pi variant of the virus. We're on Omicron, there will be a pi variant, and we will work our way through the Greek alphabet. I suspect, but I can't be certain, that each wave caused by a new virus will be less deadly. There's uh, some reason to hope that, but it's not certain. Uh, so don't bank on post-pandemic life in 2022. I think the stock market stock market's going to tank at some point, and I think it'll be led by meme stocks and tech companies that don't actually make money. Uh, I, I think this will happen whether the Fed tightens too much or too little. Uh, I mean, basically, markets are not going to like high inflation, nor are they going to like uh, a really significant monetary tightening. I want to add a prediction about the technology realm. I think the metaverse will bomb. I've come to the conclusion, having thought about it, that I can't imagine anything worse than uh, my avatar uh, having a great time in a virtual world with me wearing goggles. Forget it. Not, not, I'm not buying, and I suspect a lot of people will feel the same way. I mean, this is the escapism that only makes the cascade of disaster in the real world more likely. Fourth, I think, obviously, politically, the Democrats are going to lose the House, but I think they're going to lose the Senate as well. Uh, and finally, just bringing it back to geopolitics, I think for all of these reasons, we're going to end up with at least one of three possible wars, and maybe more than one. Um, so, Remember all that talk a year ago about the Roaring Twenties? We were going to have the Roaring Twenties just like they, they did after 1919. Well, I, I said then on this show, we'll get the Roaring 2021, but that'll be it. And I think for that reason, I expect uh, 2022 to be anything but roaring, or if it roars, it'll be a battle cry. I just want to riff on the financial and, and economic part of that, which I agree with. Um, we're clearly at a, at a strange moment when everybody knows interest rates are going up and inflation is high and, and the bond market hasn't moved yet. <laughs> uh, so, so one of these things has to, either inflation just goes away and we go back to normal, which would be wonderful. It's sort of, we, we could use some manna from heaven right now. Mm -hmm. But more likely as inflation keeps going and about five minutes after he's confirmed, Powell raises interest rates. As Neil pointed out, if you want to catch up with 6% inflation, uh, you need a heck of interest rate going up. Markets aren't pricing that in. At that point, uh, bond markets uh, finally wake up to what's going on and, and tank. Interest rates uh, get, get uh, high throughout the yield curve. That's the moment the stock market uh, tanks as well. Um, the ECB is an even tighter problem because, of course, if they raise interest, they've bought all those Italian bonds. <laughs> Uh, higher interest rates are much, much harder on the economy right now. Let's, let's start with just how it's going to hurt people left, right, and center when the inevitable recession comes. But of course, higher interest rates make the whole uh, debt uh, problem even worse. That's true in Europe as well. So, so that could all spark off a, a great uh, could, because <laughs> uh, who knows? It's very hard to forecast the stock market. But in addition to the overvalued tech stocks and the overvalued and the green bubble, uh, that that could spark some real uh, financial uh, financial events. We we could have a lot of the 1970s all compressed uh, in, into the same time, as well as I'm I'm, rem I'm remembering uh, internationally. I'm remembering Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Uh, how little things can uh, maybe that's the right historical precedent for what's going on internationally. How little things can snowball. So th there's danger of of an avalanche next year. Just one little factoid for you, John. Uh, well before uh, the 70s got going, 
uh, between November 1968 and June 1970, the S&P declined 39% as the Fed tried to bring its inflation mistake under control. Uh, I'm not saying that's going to happen next year, but I think uh, investors have to be a little nervous uh, because this, this could certainly turn ugly quite quickly. And it went down 40% in 1974. And as you point out, long before the oil shock, we had the collapse of Bretton Woods, uh, largely due to uh, the, the Vietnam War spending, which was was couch change compared to what we just did. Uh, so yes, uh, th- things are primed. It's easy to be grumpy uh, and, and to, to uh, see dangerous things on the horizon. John, let's stick with the economy for a second. Uh, true or false, inflation is the economic story right now. And if you're looking into 2022, John, uh, is it similar to foreign policy? And Neil giving us a handful of 2022 prediction. In other words, are there a slew of economic things we're looking at? Or do you think that one economic development will outweigh the others? Uh, <laughs> well, what happens to inflation is clearly uh, yes. the question. Does it keep going? And then does the Fed finally wake up and do something about it? That You asked what's in the news. That's in the news. Yeah, There's a lot that's going on that's not so much in the news, which is this puzzling supply chain, whatever, the puzzling labor shortage. Um, mm-hmm. uh, why are we not? We, we, we're, we, we bounce back pretty quickly. This, this is... A pandemic is not a normal recession. It's like a big snow day. Well, a snow day where a lot of people die, but it's like a snow day to the economy. When it's over, you're supposed to come back. And, and we're still uh, not back. Restaurants can't find people to work. Uh, my, my favorite ski area is not is going to be, they won't have a rental shop because they can't find anybody to work. Right. Uh, so so the, uh, this, the, the lingering sort of sclerosis of the economy, the labor shortage are, are actually important. Uh, things uh, things behind it all. But um, uh, if there's a big financial shock resulting from inflation Fed policy, that's clearly going to be the, uh, you know, the big news of the year. It's worth it's just to tie into it, that. Neil, can I ask you about the Chinese economy, what your view yeah. is of the Chinese economy? Oh. Well, a year ago, uh, it was widely believed that the Chinese economy would grow very rapidly this year. That was the mm-hmm. World Bank and the IMF projection. And my view, uh, and that of Greenmantle, uh, the advisory business I run, was very different. We thought that China was actually going to have a relatively uh, disappointing year, uh, closer to 6% than to 9%, because of uh, demographic uh, headwinds, uh, debt headwinds, the enormous scale of of corporate debt, particularly associated with the real estate uh, sector, and also the unintended consequences of their zero COVID policy. Uh, Many people a year ago were praising Xi Jinping for the way in which uh, the Chinese authorities had prevented COVID from spreading outside Hubei province in any significant way. Uh, The problem is that the draconian measures that they used to prevent that have become a source of rigidity in the economy. Uh, The the zero COVID strategy gets harder if the virus becomes more infectious. Uh, And so they've been playing whack-a-mole with increasing uh, uh, fervor uh, this year, and it's it's become a constraint on growth. I think it's politically something that Xi Jinping and his advisors quite like. They've got the, the economy essentially shut down. They've it, it greatly increased the power of the party in terms of surveillance. But it's another reason why the economy is looking less good. The showdown uh, between uh, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and the big tech companies is a part of this story too. So I, I think it's worth reminding uh, listeners that in some ways the news is not all bad. 
Uh, it's easy to, to become quite despondent and grumpy, like John, when you think about the situation of the US, because much that we've talked about was foreseeable a year ago. In fact, I remember writing columns saying, here are all the reasons this won't be a transformative presidency. Uh, and here are the kind of problems that are going to, going to surface this year. And most of them actually have surfaced. We've talked about some of them, but, 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 but others, including a middle class, middle American revolt against the educational cult of wokeism, that was predictable uh, uh, just about a year ago. Uh, and, and the crisis in the border, that was predictable. The persistence of violent crime in the cities, that was predictable. You could see a lot of this coming. But it's important to remember that China has its problems too, that the idea that Xi Jinping is 10 foot tall and China is going to inherit the world, I think we should always push back against. Because in truth, in, in truth, his challenges are bigger and harder to resolve. How to maintain the control of one-party state over a fifth of humanity in a world that is increasingly networked? Uh, how, in fact, to, to re resurrect Marxism-Leninism as the basis of power? Um, this seems to me ultimately like an impossible challenge. And in at the risk of sounding like a Marxist, I would say the internal contradictions of that strategy are going to manifest themselves this year. The problem is that the harder it becomes for Xi Jinping domestically, the more he's tempted to take risk internationally, counting on nationalism as the thing that will keep the party in power. So I see Chinese weakness, which is increasingly apparent, as ultimately a reason to worry because it's, it's actually going to increase their readiness to take risk over Taiwan and over other issues too. Mm -hmm. but to, just to, to continue on the optimistic theme here, you know, because it is, we are approaching, you know, the, we're in the middle of the holiday season, right? I mean, right. You know, it, I, I do think that democracy is resilient, right? And totalitarianism is brittle. And we talked in the past year about, you know, about the 1970s as an analogy. We've talked about it several times, right? When a period during which we had multiple traumas that 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 were larger in scale in many ways than than the traumas we're facing today, at least economically, and and uh, and and we thought that the Soviet Union was strong relative to us in that period. I, when I look at what Xi Jinping just put out this paper on democracy, like he's defining totalitarianism as democracy, right? He he defines rule of law as the absence of, of rule of law and due process of law. And it seems to me that the the the, the term you used, uh, internal contradictions, they're they're just getting worse, Neil, right? And and and, and this. Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, right? It looks like kind of a stretch for anybody to believe, right? I mean, it is in many ways, you know, to quote Dr. Evil, right? The Diet Coke, the Diet Coke of communism, just one <laughs> calorie, you know, not communist enough. <laughs> now you have cheered me up. It's Xi Jinping as the dictator for life of the Communist Party. They, they had sort of had a system where we, we ro rotate power. And he's trying hard to put that into a, a and who's, maybe it'll become hereditary. But I, I want to pivot to we we have to have, have optimistic news. And, yes. and Neil said something that I want to pick up on. Uh, what's the good news of the year? I think Neil's right. We hit peak woke, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, uh, parents are have seen what's terrible in the schools and are tired of it. Uh, minority and low-income parents have seen exactly what the public school system is doing to them, and they are tired of it. Uh, the universities where wokeism started are waking up. There are free speech movements on many universities where faculty uh, alumni are saying, no, this is absolutely ridiculous, and, and starting to be willing to, to speak out. Uh, so I, that's my, my hope for <laughs> the next year 
is that we've we've hit peak woke and, and we're on our way down. So let's make that the last question of 2022. And John has already uh, given his response. Gentlemen, well, there are three constants that we seem to get into on Goodfellas. We always seem to be talking about China. We always seem to be talking about COVID to some extent. We always seem to be talking about wokeism. Uh, John seems to believe that we've turned a corner to some extent on wokeism. Uh, but Neil, here's the question. If we're having this conversation a year from now, is there better news to report on wokeism or China or COVID? I think there'll be better news on all three. Okay. I mean, I, my sense is that uh, that COVID is gradually transitioning into an endemic state. And, and what I'm going through at the moment uh, is just like, it feels like a cross between the flu and the common cold. And I'm touching wood and hoping that it'll pass relatively quickly. And, and I, I can see a future a year, 12 months from now when we, we begin to treat COVID as one of these uh, irritations rather than existential threats. I think the news will be better on China, partly because in order to focus on this great domestic political uh, transition to the leader for life, they, they're going to be trying to avoid uh, trouble this, this coming year. Indeed, there might even be some kind of attempt at detente from the Chinese side. But I agree with John, the really exciting prospect is that uh, in the wake of peak wokeism, we see a really effective counterattack against these extraordinarily harmful ideas and tactics that have permeated the educational system. And I think that given the, the way in which parents, uh, and indeed many people in education, have, have turned in frustration against this illiberal, anti-free speech uh, kind of of culture, there's there's something to look forward to. And one thing that I'm particularly keen on seeing is that this becomes central to the Republican Party's uh, strategy uh, for winning the midterms and indeed the presidency. Education played no part whatsoever uh, in the presidential election of 2016 and barely any right. uh, back in 2012. And yet it's the most important issue for the future of this country. We have to sort out the really serious mess that exists at every level from the lowliest public school to the most elite university. I think that we're going to make some real progress this year, this coming year on that. And that will be the thing that we look back on with most satisfaction 12 months hence. I want to echo, I was grumpy about COVID earlier, but there is a world where we have treatments that finally the FDA lets us have, that we have uh, vaccines that rapid, like the flu vaccine, rapidly uh, keep going, that we have widely available rapid testing. And with that, this becomes, um, you know, once it becomes a disease that, that is less damaging than the annual flu, then it's something that you can finally get to living with. And the, the, the big question is going to be with, with this just gift on a silver platter, can the Republicans take it and, and offer competent, simple governance like Biden campaigned on? Or are they still going to be talking about Trump? And I hope it's not the latter. Did you just say the word gift, John? Because I, I don't know why you did, but it just brought to mind somebody who brings gifts. Wait, there he is. Oh, oh, oh. This, this would not be a good fellow's Christmas episode without a visit from Hoover visiting fellow Chris Kringle. Well, Mr. Kringle, how are you today? Good, Bill. You've been very good this year putting up with these good fellows. And now you're going to get something extra special in your stocking this year, Bill. Thank you. I've tried my best and no need to have General McMaster on this call. He's on everybody's nice list. But I got to ask you about these two reprobates here, Ferguson and Cochran. Naughty or nice? 
I think both of them are very nice, Bill. In fact, I would have my doubts about Conkren. You know, he'd always been kind of grumpy, but I quite like that character, that green character. I used to know the Grinch. I think that his, his heart has grown bigger over the course of this year. And I think we ought to start calling him the huggy economist now because of <laughs> he's just so nice and fun to be with. And, and of course, Ferguson, of course, you know, he, he wrote this great book, Doom. Uh, and and uh, I thought that was kind of negative. You know, at the North Pole, you know, we, we thought that we were, it was kind of a downer up there. But but actually, he did us a great service by recognizing that, you know, the problems we face today are not unprecedented. And I, you know, I gave it to all the elves and uh, and, and they actually took a positive, a positive approach to, to the future based on reading doom. So I, I you know, I'll tell you, we, we don't have the problems you have, you know, at the North Pole. Uh, you know, our elves have not unionized. Uh, they're they're not woke, you know. They work very well together. They don't try to. Ooh, OSHA's coming your way, buddy. <laughs> into certain identity categories or anything, uh, but uh, but but I listen. I listen to Goodfellows, and you know who I think is has been best of all, Bill. This year is the good the Goodfellows audience. You know they've been yes. faithful. They've been engaged. Uh, they they ask great questions and provide great comments, and and so they're going to all get something very special uh, in their stocking this year, Bill. Okay, well said, Santa. Uh, John Neal, you want to say uh, goodbye to our audience? Wish them a happy holiday. I'm just going to quote Dickens. God bless us, everyone. Thanks, Santa. And, and thanks to everybody who, who listens to our, our musings, occasionally our ramblings. It's, uh, it's a real privilege to have the chance to have these conversations and, and share them with a much bigger audience than we would ever have reached before the plague year struck. Thank you, Neil. Get better, my friend, John. I'm not sure about the Huggy Economist. Being Huggy didn't work out too well for Andrew Cuomo, so I'm not sure I'd go down that road. But uh, would you like to say goodbye to our audience, John? Uh, yes, I appreciate all of our audience. I appreciate my good fellows who have kept me uh, kept me going through these uh, pandemic years. It's been just such a wonderful pleasure to, uh, to talk with all of you. And um, see you in the new years. And, and let's hope all of our, our grumpy predictions are wrong and that our hopeful predictions are right. And Santa, if the good general were here, what would he say? Ho, 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 Bill. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year. Look forward to seeing everybody in the new year. Let me echo everything my colleagues have said here. Uh, we greatly appreciate your interest in this show. Uh, and don't have a freak out. We're not going to be back for a few weeks. We're going to take a little time off so we can all rest up and enjoy the holidays as you. We will be back in January. We already have some great shows lined up for you. So we're looking forward to doing that. So on behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, wherever he is, and uh, visiting fellow Chris Kringle, uh, have a great holiday season. And we will see you again in 2022. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds. Oh, ho, ho.